You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Um, I get to I get to introduce you to our guest speaker this morning. Uh, Pastor Tyler Sinclair is going to tell you a little bit more about his family and also about Cornerstone Church that they planted in Detroit. And so. Uh, I told you this morning is about multiplication, and if you give to Connection Church, you're giving not only to multiplying the gospel in our city as we minister in our city, but in the nations and even in our region. And so, uh, since uh, since probably uh, the first year of their of their planting, we as a church have gotten to partner with them financially. And so, when you give to Connection Church, it goes to the gospel going out even in Detroit. And so, you get a chance to see as a, I hope an answered prayer as he updates us on on some things going on in the life of our church, but also be blessed. Uh, as he gets to, to bring God's word. This, this brother has been an encouragement and a friend to me when I've needed it most. And so it's my honor to, and privilege to introduce you to Pastor Tyler this morning. Good morning. My name is Tyler Sinclair, lead pastor of Cornerstone Church Detroit. And um, by God's grace, about six years ago, we celebrate six years of public ministry next week. Um, and yeah, I know, yeah. Uh, in our... And our staff meeting, um, someone said, yeah, does it feel like six years? I said, 66 years for me. <laughs> um, by God's grace, we've been slugging it out in the beautiful city of Detroit, Michigan. Um, as Jonathan said, um, your church has been a tremendous, tremendous blessing to our ministry, to our family. The lands have been a, uh, uh, an encouragement and friends to me. So I'm just so, so very thankful this um, summer, I was able to take July off and just reflected a lot on gospel partners and all of what God has been able to do through our ministry. Um, right before my little time off, I had the privilege of baptizing my third child in our church. I'm seeing not only others come to know and follow Jesus, but I'm seeing my own children who grew up in the church, who remember when we were just in the living room talking about starting a church. And it sounded like the most ridiculous thing in the world. But I'm having the privilege of baptizing my third, uh, three of five children. I have five children. I have a lot of kids. Um, but my three uh, teenagers have all kind of grown up in the church. And seeing them, being able to baptize them, seeing them be able to follow Christ, and then do ministry this summer, summer missionaries. It's, it's just amazing, encouraging things have happened. This has been a really trying time for us um, in the last couple of years. But... By God's grace and through your partnership in the gospel, you guys have been, a, again, a tremendous blessing. And that guy over there has been a friend of mine. He's called me, and we've talked, and we've lamented, and we've been able to just uh, encourage each other in the gospel. So I'm just really, really thankful to be here. I almost did not make it. Super long story. <laughs> but I'm here, and I'm excited to jump into God's word. And I look forward to meeting some of you later on as well. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your partnership in the gospel. Give yourselves a hand. I'm, I'm, I, I always love seeing, I always love seeing baptism. I always love seeing baptism in new life. And because of your ministry, the gospel is flowing in your city and also reaching in places in Detroit, Michigan. So thank you for your partnership in the gospel. Um, for those who uh, I hope follow along with me in the Bible, uh, you can open up Tablet, book, scroll, I don't know what you have. Um, but we'll be in Daniel chapter 1. The verses will also be behind me as well. Um, let me start with a question. H have you ever felt like 
you have not fit into a place. Have you ever felt like you walked into a place and like, I don't really fit in here. This was several years ago. I volunteered to uh, take my daughters. I have five children. Four of them are girls. We live in an estrogen jungle. My son and I, <laughs> daily, we fight for our lives. So I, I volunteered. Uh, I told my wife, my wife wasn't feeling well, so I told my, I'll take all four of our girls to their dance class. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into this day. I felt like a fish out of water as 40 little girls ran around and screamed in tutus. And I was surrounded by suburban moms in their Starbucks and Lululemon leggings. And I was, I just was very confused and did not fit in. I awkwardly sat there and smiled and tried to engage in small talk and some chit chat. And after a while, they just forgot I was there. And then the gossip and the TMI began to burn my virgin ears. <laughs> but now, after many years, I am a seasoned dance dad. I no longer feel uncomfortable. But have you ever, again, felt like you were out of place? Have you ever felt like you did not belong? Completely feeling out of place had to be the overwhelming feeling for Daniel and his friends as they were snatched out of Judah and taken to be enslaved in Babylon. Daniel chapter 1 will show us how to live godly lives, how to reflect the glory and the aroma of Jesus as culture becomes more and more ungodly and seeks to conform us. We'll learn how to remain gracious and kind while standing on truth at the same time. We'll see how the Lord is in complete control at all times, even when things look bleak, even when things look chaotic. The Lord is in complete control. Follow along with me in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him along with some of the vessels of the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his gods, and put the vessels in the treasury of his gold. So the first two ver verses of this book set the scene and tell us the spiritual climate of Judah in the early 6th century, Judah had forsaken God and forsaken his ways under the, the king Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was nothing like his wise and godly father, Josiah, and took Judah into steep spiritual decline. So in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar swept through the land of Judah and took complete control over it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has an interesting origin story. You know, every villain has an origin story. He actually started as a small-town chief and rose to power as he convinced other bordering towns and other bordering leaders to merge together and to create the massive empire, empire of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was feared throughout the world and known for being ruthless unhinged, unstable, and would murder without conscience. 
But interestingly enough, the, the empire of Babylon dates way back to Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. Y'all remember Sunday school? In Genesis 11, there was a, a multitude of people, and they began to build this tower. They, they, they had the hope of building a tower to ascend to God, to overthrow heaven. Listen to the mantra. This is the mantra of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with the top into the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. The mission of Babel, the mission of Babylon is let's build ourselves an empire. Let's make our names great. Ever since Babel fell, humans have been attempting to build their own kingdoms. Humans have, beginning, have begun to build their own names to rival with God. Each and every one of us at times are glory thieves. You know what a glory thief is? Attempting to steal from the glory of Christ. Whenever you uh, attempt to build your name, to exalt yourself, that's the heart of Babylon at work. Family, going all the way back to Genesis, and we fast forward all the way to Revelation, when the great Babylon finally falls. Babylon represents the evil empire that is in complete opposition to the kingdom of God. Going all the way back to an eternity's past, Lucifer and a multitude of angels were cast out of heaven. This, this empire has been waging war with God's kingdom. Put a pin in that. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But verse 2 starts with an interesting phrase. The Lord handed Jehoiakim of Judah over to him. Now see, this phrase, this, this phrase presents a, 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 a theological snag for many of us. For those who don't necessarily understand suffering, for those who don't understand the, the sovereign hand of God, the, the phrase that the Lord handed Judah, the Lord handed Jehoiakim over to Babylon. That presents a snag. According to Daniel 1, God himself handed God's people over to God's enemy. God judged his own people through a more wicked, sinister, and evil king. The very same vessels that were used for the worship of God were transferred to the house of Babylon. Countless Families were broken up as thousands of people were taken from Judah to Babylon. And God was responsible for this. Have you ever heard those questions? If God was good, why is there evil? If God was good, why would he allow this? Put a pin in that. I'm going to come back to that as well. Jump down to verse 3. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from nobility. 
young men without any physical defect, good-looking like Pastor Tyler St. Clair, suitable for instruction and in all wisdom, knowledgeable, <laughs> perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. Verse 5, the king assigned them daily provision from the royal food and from wine, from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend to the king. Among them were Judeites, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Verse 7, this is, this is interesting. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave, to, uh, he gave Belshazzar to Daniel. He gave Shadrach to Hananiah. He gave Meshach to Mishael. He gave Abednego to Azariah. So after a military conquest, Babylon would take the cream of the crop, the, the, the most talented, the most physically attracted, the most intellectual, the, the most gifted, back to Babylon as human assets. Among them were these four Hebrew men. The, we would see them, they, were, they would be mentioned all throughout this book. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Az Azariah. So the job of this man, the chief eunuch, uh, Ashpenaz, he, he was to fully indoctrinate these men from Judah, men and women. He was to fully indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture. But notice this. He does this in somewhat of a sinister, genius way. He's not brutal. He's not harsh. He's not forceful. He's actually gracious and kind to these slaves. Instead of treating them like disposable slaves, he, he actually gives them the very best of the best of Babylonian culture. He gave them the best food gave them the best lodging. He gave them the best education that was possible in the known world. His aim was to erase every trace of Jewish culture, every trace of personal distinction that they had, and to make them fully Babylonian. The king of Babylon took them from their homes, took them from their families, and removed their religious, ethnic, and social identities to completely indoctrinate them in all things Babylon. See, what the king of Babylon knew then is something that is still true today. You will become whatever you are saturated and immersed in. You and I will become whatever you are saturated in, whatever we are immersed in, that is what we will become. Family, whatever you allow to dam dominate and saturate your heart and mind, that's what you will become. Have you noticed that? If you allow what you take in as far as social media and news and all these things, the, the world is falling apart, the world is coming to an end, you will become anxious. You will become fearful. Whatever dominates your heart and dominates your mind, whatever you are saturated in, that's what you will become. This is why we want to be saturated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why we believe in gospel community. This is why we believe in discipleship, because we want to be like Christ. Whatever you are saturated in, whatever you are immersed in, that is what you will become. Nebuchadnezzar literally changed their names. To give them a complete Babylonian makeover, he changed their names. Daniel's name meant 
we have a slide for that. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. And his new name was Belshazzar. Baal, protect his life. Hananiah, the Lord shows grace. What a beautiful name. Now Shadrach, under the command of Aku, the moon god. Mishael, who is like God, a name offering praise and worship to Yahweh. Meshach, who is like Aku. Azariah, the Lord helps, is now Abednego, servant of Nebu, the god of learning and writing. The king of Babylon switched their Jewish names, which pointed and worshipped and honored Yahweh and gave them names to worship and honor Babylonian gods. Solomon said it best, there is nothing new under the sun. Satan uses the same tactics that Nebuchadnezzar employed centuries ago. The enemy will attempt to use the culture around us to attempt to rename us. The culture around us will will attempt to remove your identity, your God-given identity, who you are in Christ, and give you a lesser identity. Please hear this. Let me move this. Rub it up against my beard. Sorry about that. (laughs) Hear this. Parents, these were teenagers. These were young men. These weren't adults. And what does culture attack? Their God-given identity. I was sitting in the lobby this morning eating my uh, breakfast, eating my banana and my oatmeal. Very healthy breakfast for me, very uncommon. Uh, (laughs) Sitting there eating, and I'm a people watcher, so I'm watching. I'm sitting, and I'm, I guess it was a bunch of travel sports teams there, and everyone had on uniforms. All these parents had on uniforms, and the kids had on uniforms, and, and my mind just began to go. Parents providing life memories, comfort, stability, education, all of these things are important, but if you are not rooting your children of Christ, if you are not making sure they know who they are in Jesus, you're setting them up for failure. You are sending your children out into a world that's going to attempt to rename them. Every day we send our children out to school, we are sending them out to a place who wants to give them a different identity who wants to snatch their identity, who wants to deny their God. I was at a parent-teacher conference thing for my first grader, and I was observing, and I was listening, and I was looking at the books that they were reading. Me and my wife talked on the way home, like, we have to do better. We have to drill the gospel in our children deeper, because every day we send them eight hours trying to rename our children. Every single day, we go out into the world, we go out into our Babylon, and we are presented with much lesser identities. Culture is attempting to steal our identity in Christ. Every Christian must know who you are in Jesus. They're going to say, your name is Abednego. No, 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 you're not, you're not Daniel anymore. 
So many Christians I talk to today, they identify as I am pro this or no, 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 I'm anti that instead of I'm a blood washed, Holy Spirit filled follower of Christ. That's my identity. Are we going to allow the culture to make us sheepish? Are we going to bow? Are we going to allow the culture to steal our identity? Are we going to settle for much lesser temporary identities? Family, the gospel tells us who we are in Christ. The the gospel, through the finished work of Jesus, I am loved. Through the finished work of Jesus, I am forgiven. Through the finished work of Jesus, I am now God's child. I am the righteousness of Christ. I am joint heirs with Jesus because of what he did. That's my identity. Everything else is secondary. Through the finished work, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are now one with our Lord and we belong to him. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. Every good story has a conflict. Here is the conflict. They're presented with food from the king's table, and Daniel desires not to eat. That phrase, Daniel determined, is one of the key phrases in this entire book. The term determined here means having made a firm decision and being resolved not to change it. Now, see, Daniel wasn't just like a picky eater. I have a six-year-old who eats six things. It wasn't, it wasn't he was a picky eater. No, I don't like that. I'm not in the mood for that. He determined to forego food and the wine from the king for two reasons. One, it was not kosher. It was likely pork, and it was likely against the law. Secondly, the wine and the food were likely offered to false gods as well. See, this term, to defile himself, points to him not just being a vegan, but having a theological conviction. This decision was based on what he believed about God. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson said, uh, Daniel realized that for the child of God, some things cannot be negotiated or compromised. He had a firm conviction. Wasn't milk toast. His, his convictions weren't based on who was in, a, in the office. His, his convictions weren't based on the changing winds of time. His convictions were based on the eternal truth of God. But notice this. Notice his approach to this decision. Notice his approach. And and please, please, please seek to apply this personally. He was not loud. He was not arrogant. He was not an elitist. He was not judgmental. Daniel doesn't attempt to change the culture around him. He doesn't uh, attempt to change others' opinions on food. 
He doesn't go on a one-man crusade against pork. He, he doesn't verbalize how eating the Jewish way is the right way. It's nothing worse than a Christian jerk. It's, it, that's the whole th- you can have truth and not have a gospel disposition. Does that make sense? You can have, uh, you can cross all the theological T's and be a jerk. As followers of Jesus, we can hold to our convictions, but be gracious and winsome and kind and not be obnoxious, judgmental, and elitist. Now, this was close to 3,000 years ago, and, and we are not Jewish, and we are not under the dietary restrictions. Thank God. <laughs> but there are places in our lives where we are called to live distinct. We're called to, to, to draw lines. Ultimately, because we belong to a different kingdom. If you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have surrendered to him, how you view money, how you view sex, how you view the opposite gender, your political ideologies, your your, your social ideologies should be rooted in your kingdom identity, not your preference, not the culture around you. Here in verse 8, we're presented with a theme that runs through the book of Daniel, and and we also see in our lives there are times when God's principles and the principles of the kingdom of God will contradict the world and the culture around us. Until Jesus returns, we are living in two kingdoms just like Daniel and his friends. Paul said in Philippians that, that, that my citizenship is in heaven like we have two passports. We live on earth. We live in America, but our true passport has been stamped by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are kingdom citizens. Listen to Colossians 1 verse 13. Colossians 1 13. He has transferred, transferred us from the do, domain of darkness. Uh, excuse me. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. By his grace, we were set free from the harsh rule of sin and Satan and shame, and we now are in the loving, gracious kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. In ancient culture, that word redemption referred to the the emancipation or the liberation of slaves or, or to buy something with power as an exchange Through Christ's death and resurrection, we were rescued from the power of Satan who enslaved us. We were brought into membership, full membership in Christ's kingdom. King Jesus shed his blood, died in our place, died for our sins, and purchased us back, redeemed us. And now we live under his rule. We live under his dominion. It's very likely that Daniel and his friends were were heavily influenced 
by a letter written by the prophet Jeremiah that speaks directly to those in exile. Listen to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. This text is from the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent to Jerusalem for the remaining uh, exiled elders, the priests, the prophets, and those people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 4. This is what the Lord of armies, the, Lord, the God of Israel, says to the exiles, I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat the produce, find uh, wives for yourselves and your sons and your daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Verse 7 is key. Pursue the well-being of the city that I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it thrives, you will thrive. Notice this. This is genius. Uh, uh, Jeremiah doesn't suggest uh, that the people create some weird subculture where they isolate and separate themselves from unbelievers around them. You know how we have weird, generic, great value Christian versions of everything else that the world has? Y'all know what I'm talking about. But he, doesn't, he also doesn't say assimilate and become totally absorbed by Babylon as well. He presents a third option. He, said, he doesn't say rage against the machine. He doesn't say fight. And he doesn't say become fully consumed. Jeremiah says pray for, multiply, and actually bless the city that I deported you to. I put you there for a reason. I sovereignly snatched you from here and put you there to be a blessing to the city. Ask yourself, what would it look like for you to be a blessing to your city while still graciously but firmly representing that you belong to a greater kingdom? The life of an exile is to be lived out in such a way that we are constantly pointing to the reality that we are ultimately aligned with the kingdom of God. Yes, I'm here. Yes, I'm on earth. Yes, I live in America, but I have a greater king, and I'm a part of a greater kingdom. Like Daniel, we'll call to, to, to wisely navigate through this earthly kingdom while we represent King Jesus. This was a theme that Peter picked up in his letters. Listen to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and what? Exiles to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles or unbelievers so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits I believe Peter is remembering something he heard Jesus say. Jesus said, let your light so shine among men that when they see your good works, they will glorify your Father in heaven. Family, as exiles, our lives, how we work, our family, uh, our church uh, should reflect that we belong to the Lord Jesus. People should be able to hear the grace of the gospel in our speech. People should be able to see Christians disagreeing well. People should be able to see Christians have different political ideologies but still love each other. 
people should be able to see the grace of the gospel in our lives. Let's begin to wrap up verse 9. Here it is. Here it is again. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would, in, you would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard, whom the, who the chief eunuch assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance to, and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about the test, uh, about this and tested them for 10 days. Now, despite this horrible, despite literally being slaves, let's not dress it up. They were well, they were treated well, but they were still slaves. We see the divine hand of God still moving. We see grace as Daniel and his friends have an advocate. Despite being slaves, they have this eunuch who's shown kindness and compassion to them. This was God's intervention. This was the hand of God, not just he merely liked them. Seeing this favor, Daniel suggests that try us for 10 days. Daniel's thought was uh, the, the vegetables in the water more than likely are kosher and weren't offered to idols. So just give us vegetables. Just give us the water for 10 days, and then you can decide after that. Again, Daniel is, is, is walking this tightrope. This is the same tightrope we walk today. He's avoiding two extremes, reckless rebellion and passive submission. Notice this. Daniel isn't careless, but he's also not a conformist. Daniel and his three friends don't become angry and protest, but they also don't quietly go against their personal convictions as well. Sadly, when presented very nuanced uh, cultural issues on sex, gender, money, power, all the things we talk about, very often Christians fall themselves and follow, find themselves in these two extremes. We isolate from culture. We, we, we completely abandon the mission or we just quietly assimilate. But notice this. Daniel is so wise. Notice where he draws the line. He does draw a line. He draws a line in the sand when it comes to the food and the wine of the king. I'm sure... Daniel was not a fan of being bombarded with Babylonian culture, false gods, learning this language, learning uh, astronomy, and, and having his name changed. I'm sure he was not a fan of those things. But he drew a line in the sand when it come, came to violating God's word. His, his conviction was based on what thus says the Lord. These four Hebrew young men, 
May the word of God their standard, not the opinions of man, not the doctrines of man, what everyone else is saying. The word of God was their standard. Nothing more and nothing less. In similar situations, uh, Christians, again, fall in these two extremes. We draw extra lines. That's called legalism. I grew up, I grew up in, 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 when I became to Christ, I grew up in a somewhat legalistic, oppressive church. And I was like, man, y'all just add stuff in here. So, so the length of my wife's dress is past her knees, but it has to be down to the ground. The color of the lipstick. Like, they're, they're, they're drawing extra lines. Or, other extreme, we allow what's around us, we allow the culture around us to draw the lines. That's called license. Legalism and license. Legalism and compromise. Do you allow the word of God to dictate how you live? Do you allow the lens of scripture, do you allow the gospel of Jesus to determine how you view the world around you? Or you do, 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 you around, do, do you allow the world around you to dictate how you view the gospel? Let's begin to wrap up. Verse six, verse 15, excuse me. At the end of the 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Verse 17, here it is again. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. Based on verse 15, the unfortunate reality is there were other young Hebrew men. So Daniel and his friends were just four among many. But the reality is, the other Hebrew young men and women, they went to the same <laughs> Jewish Sunday schools. They, 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 were, uh, they were circumcised. They went through all the same Jewish uh, teaching and culture of Daniel and his four, four friends. And what happened? They sure came. They ate the king's meat. They, they allowed Babylon to consume them. Similarly, we see this today. Many who profess Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about people outside of Christianity. I'm not talking about people who have not said yes to Jesus. Many people who profess to know and follow Jesus live and look more like Babylon than they do the kingdom of God. But by God's grace, Daniel and company were, were shockingly more healthy than those who ate from the king's table. I believe God honored their desire to honor him by allowing them to surpass their peers. Notice this, verse 17 says, God gave these four young men understanding, wisdom, knowledge of the literature. God allowed them to actually exceed in Babylon, to understand Babylonian culture, to, to understand these things, because God wanted to use them in Babylon. He didn't remove them. He put them right in the middle of a godless, wicked culture and said, shine for my glory. I think he wants to do the same thing for us. 
It's the reason I'm still in Detroit. He wants to use my life. He wants to use our tiny little church to shine the light of the gospel in a very dark place. That's why he has you here. You have friends, you have neighbors, you have colleagues who don't know Jesus. And if they die, they will spend eternity separated from God. He has you where he has you to reflect his glory and to declare the good news of Jesus. Verse 17. This is the third time we see in this chapter that God is active doing something. Verse 2 says, God handed the king over to Babylon. Verse 9 says, God granted Daniel kindness and compassion. Verse 17 says, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding and every kind of literature and wisdom. If we take a step back, we see the invisible sovereign hand of God bringing them to Babylon allowing Daniel and his friends to be healthier and to surpass those around him. It wasn't just a good diet. It wasn't just the fact that Daniel was smart. God was moving. Coming back to the point, started out with, we must understand suffering in the sovereign hand of God. Dr. Danny Aiken put it this way, God allows suffering in the lives of his people to demonstrate his sovereignty, strengthen their faith, show himself wise and strong, and to put his glory on display among the nations that they might be drawn to him, end quote. Family, this had to look really bleak. Babylon swept into Judah tore it down, and snatched the very best of Judah and took him back to Babylon. This was a bleak time. But the, despite how bleak things looked for these four young men, despite how bleak things looked for Judah back then, despite how things look for us today, all of God's creation is under his divine care and guidance. He's still on the throne. Even in the midst of punishing his people, this was a time of judgment. Even in the midst of punishing Judah, bringing judgment, God is still working to save his people and to draw them back to repentance. Daniel chapter 1 shows us today that we can be at home in Babylon while still resting in the sovereign hand of God. During this dark time in Judah's history, and in the four, the, the, the lives of these four young teen boys, imagine how afraid they had to be. Snatched away from their family, given a new life. Just imagine what they experienced. God was actually continuing his redemptive work that will culminate in Jesus Christ. I want to submit to you that despite how things look today in your life, if you are in Christ, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you to be. You may be struggling. You may be suffering. You may be in a fight. You may feel like you are living in a foreign land, but the Lord Jesus has promised to order your steps and he will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what he said. Pastor, I don't know. 
I don't know. You, you, you don't know the diagnosis I received from the doctor. You don't know that this is a great season of sadness and depression. You don't know what I'm experiencing, Pastor. That, that all sounds good, but how do I know God is in control? If you don't believe me, look no further than the cross. Jesus himself, the God-man, was wrongly convicted, arrested, tortured, sentenced, mocked by the ones he came to redeem. Jesus, fully God, fully man, despite being sinless and innocent, was beaten, physically disfigured, and nailed to a tree. Then it happened. Then it happened. The God-man died. The, the redeemer of the world took his last breath. But the same sovereign God that was directing Daniel and his friends in Babylon, the, the same sovereign God that, that makes the sun rise and sets it, the same sovereign God snatched him out of the grave on the third day. In the moment when, 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 when history was at its bleakest, literally when Jesus died, all the writers say, the world went dark. In the darkest moment of human history, God was working to redeem his people. In humanity's darkest moment, the death of Jesus was actually the moment that he used to draw millions, millions, billions of people to him who believe in him. Family, be encouraged. The same sovereign God that was directing Daniel and his friends, the, the same sovereign God that was using judgment to bring salvation in Judah, used the death of Jesus, despite being innocent, the death and resurrection of Jesus, used that to make us his children. That same sovereign God is in control of your life. It may look bad. It may feel bad. It, it, it may be bleak. You, you may be going through a time of great uncertainty, but Charles Spurgeon put it best. It's the sovereignty of God. That's the pillow we can rest our heads on at night. The same God who rose Jesus from the dead the same God who created everything, the same God who sustains the entire universe is your Father. Not only is he God, but he's Abba. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in somewhat turbulent, uncertain times, we don't have to trust in our intellect. We don't have to trust in our ability to figure it out. We can trust in your sovereign hand. Thank you that you have put us where you desire to get glory out of our lives. You've placed us in our cities. You've placed us in our families. You've placed us in our schools and places of work. You've put us there 
in a culture, in a world that is anti-God, anti-Scripture. You put us there not to be judgmental, not to be obnoxious, but you put us there to be gracious and kind and to point to the glory of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we, we pray that, as Jeremiah said, uh, during their exile, Lord, we pray that you use our earthly exile for your glory. Lord, we pray that as we navigate through very difficult, nuanced conversations, we pray that you give us wisdom to speak the truth of the gospel in a way that is kind and gracious. Lord, our desire is that you use this for more baptisms, more salvations, for, for more gospel opportunities, for more gospel conversations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.